Welcome to Ideas at the House, a weekly podcast featuring talks and ideas from the Sydney Opera House. I am Laura Murphy-Oates. I am a journalist at Guardian Australia and host of the Guardian's daily news podcast, Full Story. I'm a Nyampa Wailwam woman who grew up on Dakinjung, Awabakal and Kuringai country. I want to also acknowledge that we're speaking from many lands today on this panel, Gadigal, Bidjigal, Darug lands, and I want to pay my respects to elders past and present of these lands and acknowledge that no matter what land it is, it's stolen, unceded Aboriginal land. So I thought I'd kick off tonight with a bit of a meditation on the theme before I pass it over to our amazing panel, uh, the theme of the myth of the fair go, and I've been thinking a lot about it. This subject is very resonant to me as an Indigenous woman who grew up in a largely white town and white area. I spent a lot of time, especially in the past couple of years, thinking about my privilege and proximity to whiteness and how that does go a long way to explain why I'm only one of a few or sometimes the only Indigenous person in the classroom or the office or on the panel. Of course, there are other reasons. The postcode I grew up in and the one I now live in the university I went to, Sydney University, my parents' middle-class status and the fact that they went to university as well, the fact that I'm able-bodied and so on. I know these types of questions around privilege and fairness and opportunity are ones that all three writers today have thought a lot about and very deeply. I know because I've read and listened to their work and I've learned so much in, in doing that. So I'm really excited to speak to all of you. I know that pumping up your own tires is a little bit tough, so I think I might give you some intros and talk about some of your successes before I let you, um, you know, blush and, and, and say, oh, oh, oh don't. Um, so I'll start with Sheila. Sheila Nocam is a writer, producer and radio maker. She's published in many places, including the New York Times and most recently a little known rag called Guardian Australia. She's held digital and editorial roles at the ABC and continues to produce stories and documentaries for ABC RN. She's currently a PhD candidate at the Australian Institute of Health Innovation and lectures in public health ethics at Macquarie University. Welcome, Sheila. Hi, Laura. <laughs> Bree Lee is an author and freelance writer. Her third book, Who Gets to Be Smart, just came out in June. And one of her previous books, Eggshell Skull, was awarded the 2019 Biography Book of the Year Award and listed for a bunch of other awards as well. She's written investigative journalism, opinion, short fiction, essays, and arts criticism. And she's currently doing a PhD in law at the University of Sydney. Oh, lots, lots there to say. Welcome, Bree. Thank you. Um, Rick Morton is an award-winning journalist and previously a social affairs writer for The Australian. He's now a senior reporter for the Saturday Paper. He's also the author of three non-fiction books, including his latest, My Year of Living Vulnerably. His memoir, 100 Years of Dirt, which was long listed for a Walkley, and the extended essay on money. Welcome, Rick. Hello. Hello, Laura. Thank you for having me. Welcome, everyone. <laughs> um, I wanted to start off with a question about your families and your childhood, because I think it's something that a lot of people can relate to. It'll get you talking a lot about who you are and, and what you think about some of the fundamental things that we want to talk about on the panel tonight. I know growing up in Australia, it's hard to avoid hearing this type of rhetoric about being a lucky country, a country where everyone gets a go, an intrinsically fair country. And I'm wondering how that sat with all three writers on, on the panel tonight. I'm wondering, did you believe this? And if so, did you question it? And when did you question it? Rick, I might start with you, as you've written a lot about your experiences of poverty as a child. How does this type of rhetoric sit with you? Do you know what? It doesn't sit well with me anymore. But I remember growing up that I fully believed that institutions were there to protect us. I fully believed that even Centrelink and the Child Support Agency, which mum was constantly having to fight, and I watched her cry and break down, you know, almost weekly because of this bureaucratic kind of mess. I, I was so naive that I believed that we were ultimately quite lucky because at least we had access to these things. And it was really, I think, partly testament to the fact that mum shielded us all as much as she could from the real nature of all of that. But also, I don't think my, my class consciousness could not have awoken in the way that it did until I went to university. Because, you know, I, although there were rich people and poorer people than me in my hometown where we eventually moved, 
um, there was not a great deal of difference between the bottom rung and the top rung. It was kind of everyone got along and everyone hid what was the excess, I guess, at either end. And then I realised that the world was vastly different and that what had happened... Hard to see class and privilege when everyone has got a similar, you know... Yeah, um, yeah. And (laughs) I just just realised that we had suffered a lot, um, particularly mum, and that the stress had actually taken root but hadn't done its full damage yet and that would happen later on in life. Mm. I feel like you've written very closely to this theme. I was reading your essay on money... And you wrote that this phrase, if you have a go, you'll get a go, that our Prime Minister Scott Morrison is very keen Mm. on, appeals to a bias buried deep under the skin of people who have never known deep financial struggle, that it is a passivity of poor people that locks them in disadvantage. I found that a really interesting passage because I also think that, one, it's true, but in that is an assumption that some people, especially our leaders, put forward these ideas that that poor people just don't work hard enough and that's why they're poor, that they actually believe it. And I'm wondering whether, you know, you think that is true or whether this is kind of just a bit of a convenient narrative that's wheeled out by people who don't believe in helping other people, in in paying for welfare and their money going towards welfare. Do you know what? I honestly think they believe it, but not because they're trying to play political games necessarily. They believe it because... Unless you're really dedicated to trying to understand your fellow human, um, if you haven't come from that kind of background, even if you were kind of working class, right, working class is tough and it's got its own cultural kind of access issues, um, no matter where you live kind of thing. But if you haven't known real destitution and that kind of hand-to-mouth fighting and battling every hour, you know, wondering how you're going to pay these bills, how you're going to do X, Y, Z, you actually don't really understand the fact that they work harder than anyone else. Um, by dent of just trying to survive. And that kind of motto, they look at people and they think, well, I'm a success. Um, I didn't, wasn't fabulously wealthy. Um, there's this great study, and I think I mentioned it in that book, but I can't remember where it came from. But basically every income quintile in Australia, they all think they're poorer than they actually are, except for the mm. poorest people at the bottom who actually think they're better off than they really are. And I think that says <laughs> so much about our psyche, Right. Um, and it's it's interesting, I just wanted to make this point as well, because we're all here now talking about the myth of the fair go um, via the Sydney Opera House platform. And people will look at us and be like, well, obviously it's true. Um, these people made it. And my point that I, I'm making that on Money Essay is that you can't fall for the fallacy of the one who made it out. Um, mm. I didn't get here because I worked harder or smarter. I got here mostly by pure silly luck and that I met the Mm. right adults at the right point in time across my life who were there to support me in a million different ways that I needed to. And it's such an intoxicating narrative that I think, like, as a junior journalist, a lot of you you buy into when you're you're doing those stories. Here's this person, they made it, you know, this is a fair country. I've seen so many of those stories, you know. (laughs) It's a great story. Um, Sheila, I know your family has an incredible story with your parents actually meeting while fleeing South Vietnam. I'm wondering how their experiences and ideas shaped your view of Australian society and shaped it growing up, what, what you came, what you expected um, because of their experiences. Yeah, I mean, I was really interested in what Rick described about his mother protecting him from the reality, whereas I would say I grew up with the, um, the exact opposite idea of the myth of the, like the, of the fair go in that I was told that life was actually incredibly unfair and that everything in our life actually pointed to this. Um, even though my dad would always say how lucky we were to like, you know, be in Australia. Um, he wasn't exactly a grateful um, refugee, I would say. He certainly had his issues with Australia and we mm. certainly didn't necessarily aspire to be like everyone else. Um, but I guess when Rick talks about that poverty and that, I mean, it's something that my family experienced as well. I mean, obviously my parents came to Australia as resettled refugees. They they left, you know, the classic story, they left on a boat, they ended up in a refugee camp. They turned up in Adelaide with nothing, basically. Um, mm. But when I look back at my parents' life, like, it is incredible that the financial risk they took as well. Like, we were heavily indebted for a long time, but even after being in Australia for about eight years, they took out a huge loan to start up a supermarket and then it failed after two years and then we were just paying off that debt for like the next like 15 years. Um, and so mm. I think all of those experiences um, early on and compounded with, I would say, a lot of trauma in the family background too. Like, I mean, as a child, I wasn't really protected from how difficult our life was. Like, 
I witness a lot of violence and you know alcoholism, like you name it, just very dysfunctional adult behavior. And but I think because of that, um, I was told that you know it was really important to be educated and that this was like a transition, like that we weren't supposed to stay in this sort of phase of life that that we were supposed to like you know do better from the next generation. So I think a lot of um, people from backgrounds like me like would find that a common experience where you're really burdened with the success of every generation that has come before you, like all of their sacrifices are propelling mm. you to really do your best, especially with edu education in the, in the Vietnamese context. There's a real kind of focus on education being a pathway out of um, poverty and I guess in terms of class mobility as well. Yeah. You've written about how your dad tried to discourage your interest in journalism, saying that your appearance alone would always hold you back in Australia, which was just a, a tough sentence to read, really. Um, I'm wondering if it's fair to say that your family's concept of what was possible in Australia's society was influenced by an understanding of racism and how deeply it runs in, in Australian culture. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting thinking back to that moment because I think I was about 16 when my dad said, you know, I think I was interested in journalism at the time and then he said, well, you're Asian, you're never going to get very far. And I remember getting really angry at him when he said that. Um, and it's, it's, it's this pattern in my life where I, I'm sort of, I guess, inclined to be optimistic about change and progress. And my dad yeah. is always like the opposite. He's always like pulling me back. He always um, thinks that I see too much good in people when people are really not like that. And it's so... This is a struggle, like a tension that we still have you know, to this day. Um, and I guess I've had to learn the hard way, essentially, about a lot of these truths as well. Um, I mean, certainly um, we were under no illusion about racism. Like in growing up in Australia during the 80s and 90s, being Asian, I mean, I was regularly told like, to go back to my, you know, back to where I came from. Like I, I was just thinking of a, of a time, for example, my, my brothers and I have two brothers and the three of us were playing cricket in the front yard of the house. And then, you know, a stranger just drove past in the car and just shouted out the window, you know, go back to where you came from. So that kind of thing happened a lot. So I got the message pretty early on that I probably would never really belong to this place, that my, my belonging was very conditional, even though I would like to believe that I could contribute. And ultimately, I don't really belong anywhere else. This is the closest place I have to a home now. Mm. I've got a kind of big question for you before I move on to Brie. But in recent weeks, there's been a lot of reflection about that time that your parents came to this country in the 1970s. And it's kind of been painted at this time where Malcolm Fraser threw open the doors to refugees from Vietnam and that from there, Vietnamese Australian communities were able to thrive. And the conversation right now seems to be that this was some sort of more generous, open-hearted Australia and that it doesn't exist anymore. And I'm wondering how you feel about that, that conversation that's happening right now. Um I think it's a much more complex conversation than what has, you know, I've seen sort of being written about. I think it's mm. the 70s was like this profound time of like social and political and cultural change in Australia. And I don't think we can underestimate like the 70s in that way because families like mine like benefited from a lot of those changes because it was the dismantling, the official dismantling of the white Australian policy. It was introduction mm. of refugee policy. But what I'll say about that is that, I mean, it's not that Australians necessarily like really wanted all these refugees coming from Southeast Asia. Like it wasn't a popular decision, but at the time the government um, and under Fraser, they, I guess they basically um, acknowledged their international obligations in a way that, you know, we have since long stepped back from, you know, Australia doesn't mm. really care what anyone else thinks, you know, so we, that's why our treatment of refugees has just become you know, incredibly cruel, if anything. Um, so I guess there was a small window where my family in 1980 were able to come here um, without too much difficulty compared to the, you know, the last 20 um, years or so of refugee policy in Australia. Mm. So it's a bit more complex than the picture that's been painted. But yes, the, our, our borders and our approach has definitely hardened over this time. It's safe to say, I yeah. think. <laughs> well, I mean, and of course, it's been, you know, it's, it's weighed quite heavily what's happened in Afghanistan at the moment. And I think mm. quite a lot of friends of mine who, you know, from different backgrounds, but we have like this refugee background in kind of in our immediate history. And, it, and it's triggering, you know, seeing what's happening now. And I guess I feel, really feel for the people from Afghanistan because they won't be able to, you know, come to Australia in the same way that my family did. Um, because now, you know, we really have shut the border. I mean, we shut our borders to our own citizens, let alone refugees at the moment um, under COVID. Mm. And and I think, yeah, but there is a hardening that has happened. And there's just a, and maybe it is, maybe it's slightly romantic on my part, but I do look back to the late 70s and the 80s and 
even to the early 90s. And I feel like Australia was a slightly kinder place, um, not for everyone, mm. but maybe there were certainly other things now where I said we've gone really backwards in terms of our generosity. Mm. Bree, what kind of messages did you... Sorry. Oh, sure, Bree. Yeah. Can I just add to that? Um, Senator Maureen Faruqi talks about this in her incredible memoir, Too Migrant, Too Muslim, Too Loud, about when she arrived in Australia with that sort of quintessential story of like having two suitcases and a you know baby um, almost almost or around 30 years ago. Um, she reflects that that she feels that things are much worse now in terms of that fortress Australia mentality and mm. just borders and us and them. Everything that, yeah, just everything you were just saying is what she reflects on as well. Mm. Not to plug my own podcast, but we did <laughs> an episode <laughs> about this recently where we were talking about the Tampa affair as a kind of massive turning point in, in terms of the way that we view our borders. Um, so people can go and listen to that if they like. Um, so, Brie, I'm wondering what kind of messages that you absorbed about Australia as a, as a fair country, as a lucky country. Right? Yeah. Um, absolutely. When I was growing up, I had the quintessential white suburban middle-class youth. Um, I, you know, rode my bicycle to school with my friends and we went to the local small primary school where we all knew each other's, you know, parents and names and, um, and it was wonderful. Um, but I remember it being a constant throughout my um, young life that neither of my parents had had the opportunity to go to university and they both, I believe, would have absolutely flourished and would have loved to. But various things in their young lives meant that they had other obligations and couldn't do that. And they were just constantly, they felt they were and were communicating to my brother and I that they were hitting um, ceilings at not just in like their employment trajectory, but also I think in that sort of, you know, upward class mobility trajectory. And so I grew up with the family dinner table saying, just get that piece of paper. Doesn't matter what you do once you get there. There was this really firm, genuine perspective that the university degree, no matter what degree it was, no matter how like well or poorly you did there, that that, that was a passport to the whole other sort of world. Um, and my parents, when we were younger, we didn't have a huge amount of money. Um, and, and my parents busted their guts, worked their asses off um, to get enough money to send my brother and I to private school because when they had been sending my brother to um, the local state school, he was not getting the particular type of learning support that he needed. Um, and mm -hmm. he was really struggling. Um, and then um, by this fluke, which I talk about in my book, um, my father used to run the local like convenience store where they sold, sold you know, bread and milk and cigarettes, basically. Mm. Um, and one of the customers who came in was the local priest. Um, and he had a connect. He basically had an inn for a Catholic boys high school in the area. Um, and, and the story my family tells is that when my brother moved from a state school to a private school, it's, it's mm. like his entire life trajectory changed because he was at a well-resourced school that was able to give him the learning support he needed. And from there, he was able to go to university. From there, he gets the piece of paper. And it's just like what Rick was saying earlier. Like, My brother's story is one, yes, of a huge amount of hard work from my parents in sort of scraping the money together, but two, so much luck. Like he would have been mm. in an entirely different place if he had not sort of met or my parents hadn't met the right adults at the right point in time. Um, it changed his whole life trajectory. And then I came along six years after my brother and my parents had just absolutely like locked down in their belief that education was the way up and the way out um, to the point where, you know, um, if we saw a family in the neighborhood who got a new car or who went on a holiday at Christmas, but who was still sending their kids to the local state school. It was like, you idiot. How could you possibly make a financial decision like that when education is everything? It's what like Sheila was saying, that, that this idea of, of education being the, the, the runway to, to mm. like everything else in life. And so 
sorry, just to answer your question, a part of that package was very much um, you get out what you put in at school, mm. like that this, this idea that effort in would have a direct relationship to sort of output and outcome. Mm. Um, and that is, I believe in what I write about in my book, that that aspirational sense of hard work is both one of the most wonderful and beautiful things about middle-class Australia and also the one of the most faulty and and problematic. Mm. I know your thinking has evolved so much since then and I feel like <laughs> I learned so much from, from your book, uh, which I feel a little bit ashamed to admit because I'm the daughter of two public school teachers and <laughs> I, I feel like I should have known more about this inequality in education than I did, really. Um, I think some of the most shocking moments in the book were really simple, though, um, just very simple facts that kind of shot through me like a lightning bolt. The first is just how prevalent private schools are in Australia. You write that um, Australia has about 65% of kids educated in public school, which is way lower than other countries like England, which I see as a place that kind of invented the idea of fancy schools. And I just didn't <laughs> think that that was, <laughs> that completely shocked me. I mean, were you surprised by this, finding out, you know, that basic fact about how many kids in Australia go to private schools? Absolutely. I was... Mm blown away by all of the data that I found in, in researching mm. for this book. Um, and for example, I had no idea. So about 40 years ago, um, Australia had sort of single digit percentage of kids who go to non-government schools. So private, mm. Catholic, whatever. Um, and that sort of single digit level percentage with like a few more for high schools, that's how many students currently go to the equivalent of private schools in places like the UK um, and also in Canada, you know, and like you said, the UK is where we think of these like Eton and all of this absurd class stuff happening. Today mm. in Sydney and Melbourne, it's 50-50 for secondary school students. Mm. Cleaved down the middle, this, this, and it's just this drift um, and it comes back to putting the mantra and the baseless idea of school choice um, being the primary consideration for any type of policy or funding um, mm. that means that that thing I described that I grew up with where there was just this sort of accepted wisdom in our postcode, you know, not just at our school, but in all of the families and all of that sort of the milieu that we were around, that that the millisecond you could afford to, you get your kid out of the public school and into the private school. That, mm. that that is your number one goal. And what happens is now in Australia, almost 90% of students who have any kind of higher need, so it could be English second language, kids with disabilities, there are recognized categories, almost 90% of those kids are currently left behind at state schools, which are comparatively grossly underfunded. And it mm. just keeps getting worse. And no other, we are an outlier. Nobody else does it as crazily as we do. Mm. I want to come back to the funding, but first I want to kind of throw it out to the panel. I think everyone has written about a moment where you realise just how many people around you or how many people within the power structures of Australia came from some sort of elite education. <laughs> um, Sheila, I think for you this came at university. Can you tell me a bit about that? Yeah, so, I mean, I think I'm a beneficiary of, like, you know, decent, like, public school education, um, Catholic schools as well when I was younger. And then I ended up um, at a local high school that was actually a semi-selective school. So in the late 80s, it was then half-half. So then I was in the selective side. But back then it wasn't um, – it's different now to, I think, um, to selective schools now, if anyone's familiar with the system, which is essentially another kind of elite sort of um, pathway now that people take that sort of exists mm. alongside the private system. Um, but yeah, so but when, but when I was um, you know going to high school and everything, a lot of the kids that I went to school with um, in, you know, on the selective side were kids like me, really. Like a lot of them also came from refugee backgrounds and parents were new migrants and that too. So um, I did have a little bit of class consciousness, but only within the context of like you know my community essentially. Like our next door neighbours at some point moved in, and then they were Vietnamese, but um, I knew that we weren't we weren't the same as them. My dad kind of looked down on them that they were like lower class than us. So we were like this kind of aspirational, you know, um, 
working to middle class sort of family and the, the trajectory mm. was upwards. But when I got to uni, I think that's, that was, um, and I think Rick mentioned this earlier too, that was when my eyes opened. So I went to Sydney Uni like you as well, Laura. And I think that, and because it is the Sandstone University, you know, when I turned up, I think it was its 150th year anniversary. And it was like a real shock in a lot of ways to meet kids who went to private schools and the worlds that they inhabited, like were really alien to me. Like I didn't realize that people actually like lived like that. I mean, I remember there was a girl I met, I think she went to Pimble's Ladies College, which is like, you know, quite an exclusive private school in Sydney. And, you know, she talked about how, you know, over the, over the holidays, the family would go to Aspen to go skiing. And, you know, that's the sort of thing I watch on American TV shows. I didn't know that <laughs> Australian kids also did that kind of thing as well. Um, and mm. had huge amounts of pocket money each week, even as I was growing up. So I think that um, was where my class consciousness really kind of formed as well, um, going to university. Mm. But um, the other thing I was just going to say, though, was the other thing I realised, too, that was when I did turn up to university, I realised that going to selective school had given me an advantage because... I had kind of coasted through, like, because I'm quite academic, I guess. Um, and then I met other students in my class who had worked so hard to get to the same places I had in the same class. And then mm. I started to feel a bit guilty that maybe I had a bit of undone privilege in a way going to a selective school. And it, it has to has to do with the way the system sort of um, elevates kids that go to selective schools too. So in, in some ways you can mm. do a bit less work in, but your marks get scaled up. So there were those sort of nuances too that I had to discover for myself too, but it was only through meeting lots of different kinds of people. Um, and I think what's something what Rick said um, resonated too about how a lot of people don't really know these things unless you really actually talk to people and really like are curious about their lives. Like most people just sort of walk through life not really quite understanding how other people live. It's only if you start asking questions that then you really start to see how your life is, you know, against another person's life. Um, yeah, and that's something I experienced that maybe I was actually privileged in some other ways that I hadn't really un understood as well until I got to university. Mm. I think it's only in the past couple of years that I've been thinking about this more clearly. I mean, Brie, I know you referenced the podcast Nice White Parents in, in your book and the ways in which concentrating wealth and privilege in certain schools really um, affects the rest of the population, that there's less opportunity there. Um, I'm wondering if you can talk a bit about that, about how concentrating all that wealth and privilege within the private schools and even within the selective schools has pretty big ramifications for broader society and anyone who's not in that system. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, so that podcast for anyone who is remotely interested is just so fantastic. It's made by um, the New York Times team. Mm. Um, it's called Nice White Parents. Um, and in a, and obviously in the American context, they have a more um, specific kind of pronounced and uh, history of segregation. Mm. Um, but what Australia has, um, as well as obviously a history of, of race-based, what we would, our version of segregation, but what Australia definitely has today um, is the fourth most segregated by class schooling system. And that is a result of decades upon decades of this school's choice idea. Um, and it, the extraordinary sort of maps that overlay each other are the huge gaps, um, disparities between class, class and how schools are resourced and postcode. So, mm. you know, a question I've been asked in touring this book um, is if, if I did, did ever had a kid, you know, where would I send them to school? And the honest answer mm. is, if you are in a wealthy to medium level income postcode, all of the state schools will also be completely fine. I spoke to a woman mm. last week whose child goes to a state school in Surrey Hills in Sydney. And at their last school fundraiser, the school was able to raise over $100,000. So that's not, <laughs> that's not what we're talking about when we're talking about the sort of public versus private system divide. What we're talking mm. about is that still the single biggest predictor we have for student success is parental socioeconomic level. And we're mm. talking about what I mentioned earlier, that mm. those huge um, concentrations of disadvantage that are left behind at the public system. Because as soon as the parents start making enough money, they get their kids over to the private system. And year upon year, funding increases in real terms, significantly more to private schools. Um, and, and it creates a sort of funneling 
and it funnels from primary for actually, to be honest, it starts kindy prep, preschool, yeah. early childhood education. Um, and I would mm. love to talk about that, but the funneling begins from birth and, mm. and it, the funneling gets more pronounced and more specific and it pushes some people up and it, it pushes or keeps other people down. And that is just, that was the driving force of, of my book is, is my belief that the education system at every single stage not only has a wonderful opportunity to encourage equality, but has an obligation <laughs> to encourage mm. equality. And in Australia, it, it is doing the opposite. Rick, I feel like you would have a lot to say about this, that the fact that it's not just public versus <clears throat> private, but it's also where your school is that can dictate a lot of what happens in your life. I know you grew up in a regional remote area. I don't know how you... Bit of both. Term bit it. Of both. I mean, a bit of both. Yeah, remote, I mean, both, then yeah. regional, yeah. <laughs> how do your experiences of, you know, getting an education in that kind of system um, shape how you feel about Australia's public education system? Yeah, it's I, it's really interesting listening to these stories because I always believed, and I still do, that I went to an amazing high school, um, Boona State High School. Um, it's a you know the only high school in the scenic rim Fasfan Valley where we moved to when my you know parents divorced and my whole world was turned upside down. And it was amazing because all of the teachers, it's less so true these days, but all of the teachers lived locally and they were really invested in the community. So in that sense, I was extremely lucky. Um, it was also amazing because there was no segregation. We were all just kids. 600 of us at this school, um, lots of farm kids. Um, we had kids, you know, uh, a couple of kids from Vietnam. Um, uh, obviously, we had the Chinese family um, who were in town as well. Um, I went to primary school with them. They went to the big private school in Ipswich, but everyone else just kind of ended up hanging out. And it wasn't until I went to university. So here's the thing, right? So I got a scholarship um, to Bond University, which is one of the only private universities in Australia and it's a silly institution but I didn't know that I was so naive I keep saying that but I cannot underscore enough how little I knew about the decision I was making I chose to go on a half scholarship to this university which would still have a $35,000 course fee which I would have to pay on heft except they don't do hex and I didn't even know that they didn't have fee help until the year I started so I got offered it in November 2004 and then in January 2005, they're like, oh, by the way, we've got fee help if you want it. It's just started. I'm like, well, that's good because I would not have been able to go. And then I end mm. up, not just that, but I end up a country kid in the city for the first time in his life from a fully kind of country family who don't have any relatives or friends or people we know. So there's no option for me but to just literally, I was 17 and nine months and I was just renting for the first time in my life while trying to pay all my bills and trying to go to class and also do my job as a cadet journalist, which is linked to the scholarship. And I failed all of them so badly that I dropped out. I don't have a degree mm. um, yeah. to this day. And it was funny because like, obviously there were more rich people at this university per square metre than there probably is ordinarily at other universities, except maybe Sydney university. Um, <laughs> and, um, but Definitely. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And there were lots, you know, many of them were perfectly fine, but it was just this ostentatious kind of displays of wealth. But also, and I've told this story a million times, but I will never forget it. Like this son of a developer worth like $200 million on the Gold Coast gets up at the valedictory speech and says mm. that we're letting too many fee help kids in, or as he called them, scolly kids. Um, this was in his was valedictory speech. In his valedictory speech, which he got a standing ovation because oh. was, we, were, we were bringing down the elite status of the university. Like, it sounds made up. Like, I cannot... I was sitting there... I wasn't even there because I was graduating, obviously. I was there covering it as a cadet reporter for the local newspaper I worked at, um, even mm. though I went to that university. And I just remember look, looking around the room, and there was, like, the, the willful kind of um, love they had for that kind of rhetoric. It was just so grating. And I think that was mm. one of the moments I grew up... Yeah, I mean, it's something that faces a lot of Indigenous kids when they move from remote or regional areas to universities. It's one of the big reasons you have this enormous dropout rate of university along with kind of structural and institutional racism that Indigenous yeah. kids face. Yeah, and even those, like, when they know, get to uni. Uh, those scholarships they have to the private schools, 
in mm. Sydney and, and the big cities. It's like, I'm not Indigenous, obviously, and I had so many other privileges, but that I do get, like that whole being whipped out of your community and mm. put around these people who not only don't understand you, but who often will make fun of you, even if they don't know they're doing it. Like I had this one friend um, at Bond who used to just make fun of me for being the poor kid, basically. And then after like this mm. dinner that he would pay for to be fancy, he'd be like, oh, I'm as full as a public school. Um, and just stuff like that constantly. <laughs> Mm. I mean, it's one of those a, things a, that I wish. Oh, sorry, Shirley, go on. Oh, well, I just want to add to um, actually both what Bree and Rick are saying because I'm at the stage mm. of life now. I've got two young kids, and so where I live in Southwest Sydney, it's a I would call it like a mixed class neighbourhood. But there is a, an incredible amount of like middle class anxiety about the public schooling system, and I encounter it constantly. Like, so I mean, in, you know, and my daughter's growing up with lots of advantages compared to like when I was growing up. That you know, I meet parents through like the local ballet class or the swimming school. And almost without fail, all the kids are going to the local Catholic school, which a lot of people see as like a cheap private school or otherwise actually going to private schools. And then I think um, what happens, something that I've thought about a lot, is that it ends up siphoning kids from local communities as well. So there's also like this divide that starts opening up, even on a micro level, like in suburban Sydney. So that, you know, the aspiration is that you send your kid to like a fancier school, you know, closer to the city or later or figure out a selective school, then they're traveling, commuting every day, like an hour to get to high school. And it means that mm. you end up creating a disconnection with the local community. And so it's partly why like, I live back in the area now that I grew up in very close by and almost no one um, I grew, went to school with still seems to live here. Everyone left. They all kind of, you know, upwardly mm. mobile and moved to other areas. But I, I feel like that's a real, it's, it's really creates a kind of disintegration of the social fabric in a lot of ways. And that two-tier system that, um, you know, that Brie was describing too. Like I'm seeing it happening like in real time now as I'm, you know, my, my daughter's about to start school next year. And I'm very committed to the idea of public and secular education as well. And so I've had to also kind of confront this sort of stuff for myself as someone who is basically like a class migrant. I'm a middle class parent as well. Um, not quite a nice white parent, <laughs> maybe a nice yeah. parent. I also have to kind of think, of, think about like, you know, that, you know, I also have lots of friends who are teachers and I know what the reality of a classroom is like too, when there are lots of disruptions and kids from very dysfunctional families, you know, my daughter is starting school in a very different way to a lot of these kids. She has probably the biggest book collection in the entire neighborhood, for example, and that makes a really big difference. So, but because of that, I know she'll be okay at a public school too, like that, that it's, up, it's, family, it's up to families like us actually to really change how public schools um, function as well. Because if, if I start taking my kid out of local public school, I'm contributing to that class divide as well that's occurring everywhere. Mm. I mean, I think that's very noble of you and a lot of people <laughs> talking about changing it from an individual level. Obviously, there's so much structural stuff going on here. I mean, Brie, you mentioned that, and I promise we'll move on from education soon, but I just find it so fascinating. But, um, you know, there's this sheer amount of public money that's going into private schools. And you wrote about how public funding to private schools is rising twice as fast as public funding to public schools. And that tax pay, taxpayers fund about 80% of the cost of educating a child in the Catholic school system. For me, on the face of this, it just doesn't make sense. <laughs> and I think that anyone looking on this from the outside would feel that way, that that, that amount, sheer amount of public money is going to, to private schools. And I'm wondering if we can discuss some of the reasons why we think this is happening, why we've got this feedback loop that all the money is, not all the money, but a lot of the money is being funneled into certain areas. And Brie, I, I know mm. you probably have a lot of thoughts. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and I do want to pick up on something Sheila just mentioned about mm. secular education, because an argument I make um, over, you know, a significant amount of time in my book, but which I'll compact now, is that <laughs> it's not a coincidence that we have um, had successive coalition governments with um, very pronounced, you know, quote unquote, sort of Christian values. Um, and that the way school funding works in Australia is that state governments mostly, this is a very, this is a simplification, but state governments mostly fund state schools, public schools, whereas the federal government has a lot more responsibility for funding private and Catholic schools. And mm -hmm. the results are as sort of disastrous as, as we have been talking about. Um, mm. A couple of other things, um, just what Sheila said again about this um, anxiety of parents. I have been contacted by so many parents who have described to me a, a pain and an anxiety where they feel like their moral, they cannot 
do what they think is the best thing for their child simultaneously to following their moral and ethical compass in terms of their um, the way they wish the education system was. And that is particularly mm. pronounced in postcodes where you have, which is many, where you have basically the one private and the one public school. Um, mm. Because it they're basic, they, it's not like they have a dozen different sort of varying degrees of religiousness, of cost, um, of location schools. They have one or the other. Um, and it is, I think it's so frustrating um, that we live in a country where a parent feels like they have to cross their own sort of moral borderline to, to try and give what they think and hope and in many cases believe is the best possible leg up for their child. And the big mm. argument I make is that a parent feels an obligation to put the interests of their child first, but the state has an obligation to treat all children equally. And what we have been seeing for decades upon decades is school policy, and that is like the funding policy, but also just school policies being created with voters in mind. And voters are parents who are aspirational and believe in this upwardly mobile system where if a parent... In the myth of the fair go. In the myth of the fair go. And it's <laughs> it's just one of the many ways in which, we, you know, Australia has quite a large middle class and there is a huge sort of variation in that. And it's just one of the things that makes it its own worst enemy is this belief mm. that every single person within that large middle class can elbow each other out of the way. Um, mm. And it keeps us from being... It, it truly like <laughs> rethinking things about how we can make it fairer. And it keeps us, you know, presuming that the people who are up the top deserve to be there and the people who are left down below also deserve to be there. It's a great distraction, isn't it? Yeah. Get them, get them fighting <laughs> in the middle and you don't have to worry about the top. <laughs> I want to shift topics a tiny bit, but still talking about postcodes because obviously our postcodes affect how, how we can access lots of different types of resources, not just schooling. And one of the really essential ones that we've seen is how it affects our access to healthcare in the past year. It's been incredibly stark. I mean, personally, I've seen that despite Indigenous people being a priority in the vaccine rollout we see right now in Western New South Wales, you know, a couple of weeks ago, they were one of the lowest vaccinated populations in the country. You have Wilcannia, where there is the highest rate of infections uh, in the whole country and there's no ventilator accessible it's to the a, town. That's a disgrace, yeah. Boggles my mind. And there's been some incredible reporting from Indigenous journalists around this. But I know, Sheila, you know, you've worked in health communication for a really long time. This feels like just the most stark and recent example of the way in which postcodes can affect your access to healthcare, right? I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about that and what, what you've seen um, working in this field. Um, yeah, so, but a lot of my healthcare experience that I'll have to qualify is really in Metro Sydney. And I think that is a very different prospect to when you look at kind of regional and rural areas. Um, and that was eye-opening for me too. So like some years ago, I had a job um, which involved traveling around the state and, and I spent some time, for example, in Burke. And at the time when I went there, I was pregnant with my first child. and so I was thinking about, you know, issues of like access to healthcare. And I was really shocked actually in Burke, which of course is very far away, but the closest hospital was three hours away. So if a woman woman needed to you know, deliver a baby, she would have to like actually like drive or be driven three hours to get to the hospital there. And so like the, when I kind of understood that, I, I did understand kind of healthcare a little bit differently, like having spent most of my time living in, you know, Metro Sydney and working in healthcare here. Um, but yeah, there is a, a difference. And in fact, it probably relates to this discussion we're having around this whole thing around private schools versus public schools. But that's the same thing in healthcare too. Like we started creating this system, which was very tiered with private healthcare and public healthcare. Even if like, in fact, a lot of the research would show that some of the public healthcare was actually a lot better than what you'd get in a private hospital, but people wanted to pay for, you know, a, a nicer hospital experience. Um, and so it's very uneven basically across, you know, all, all over Australia. And I think it's getting like worse since back because of, you know, um, coalition policy too around subsidising private healthcare, um, you know, and making people sort of turn away a bit from the public system. 
But I think that what we've seen during this pandemic, though, is that obviously, like, the front line is the public health care system, and that is what requires investment. And it has been also uneven there too. So, like, for example, there was something I saw the other day about how Fairfield Hospital, which is in southwest Sydney, and it was at the time the epicenter of the outbreak too in the recent one, um, that hospital hasn't had an upgrade in years and years. Like, it, it's well overdue, whereas, you know, some of the um, hospitals, like in the North Shore, now, they've been upgraded very recently, like billions of dollars, you know, poured into it. So, I mean, I mean, I guess my argument, like many people would make, is that healthcare is fundamental alongside, like, education. And, and yet, mm. I think in Australia, we've basically created this system which is incredibly unequal in, in terms of healthcare access and delivery. Mm. Rick, I know you've kind of spoken about and written about your fears for, for your family in the past year as the pandemic has ripped through different communities. And it does really affect regional communities in an interesting way, you know, that the resources, the different things you have to think about in terms of just accessing Panadol, accessing food. Yeah. Can you tell me a bit about that? <clears throat> well, I remember actually when the pandemic, when it reached Australia, right, and we were going into lockdowns, and I remember thinking, oh, my God, I'm so glad that I was able to reach a point in my life and my career where I was financially able to help buy my mum a car for Christmas, um, mm. which I did. Uh, and it was just like six months before the pandemic came. Um, and then all of a sudden, there's a run on stuff at the shops, the the local grocer in Boona where she lives. And before that, for five years, she was walking 1.5 kilometres on a return trip with her little pink granny trolley, as I used to call it, um, <clears throat> just so she could carry. And she's like, my mum was 60 at the time, 61. And she was an old 61. Like, she's lived a hard life. And her body is breaking down far earlier than you would expect. Um, and, you know, this is part of that access to healthcare problem, right? And so it's all connected. And I was just thinking, you know, what if I wasn't, what if I didn't succeed through sheer luck um, and make it to a point where I was able to do these things for my mum? Because by virtue of her giving us even a chance of success, she hasn't been able to escape her socioeconomic bracket. I mean, she is no better off than she was when my dad left kicked us out and froze literally all of the bank accounts. She had literally nothing. Um, and her hours are getting cut again because the number of kids at the school where she's a teacher's aide um, is dropped, dropping dramatically next year. And so she's going back to 24 hours, which is the minimum that she can live on. So all of these things are connected. And, you know, trying to get in for scans, trying to get in for, you know, just basic support, has and the kind of the lack of you know early access along over the years I have no doubt has contributed to the state of her body as it is now and it kind of mm. it makes me mad like you know and even more I'm rambling now because I am kind of furious about it but it's like if it wasn't for my sister and I mum would not be able to live um, and equally were it not for mum when we were growing up my sister and I wouldn't be here to help her so it's just like this kind of perverse system where the government has abrogated some or all of its responsibility to look after people and just says, well, you do it. And too bad if you you can't, too bad if your family's not big enough, too bad if your family is broken or that you're not talking and you're just on your own. And so it just kind of makes me sad. Mm. It's interesting because I feel like there was this conversation or maybe a lot of optimism at the start of the pandemic where people were talking about, oh, haven't we all just really had our eyes opened to inequality yeah. and people are helping each other and maybe this is the time that's going to fundamentally shake some people in Australia and, and, and wake them up to the inequalities that always have existed in Australia and people will think differently afterwards. And I suppose I want to throw it out to the, to the whole panel as to whether you think there's any truth in that, whether there has been any sort of awakening over the past year about inequality that will last, that will make any difference, really. <laughs> oh, I've a got a real question. super quick thought on that one. I mean, we pretty <laughs> much ended poverty with a single government decision to double the job seeker rate. And we're like, oh, my mm -hmm. God, that is kind of amazing. And then we took it away and there was a little bit of a fight from people who were mostly affected. And then everyone else is just like, well, I guess that's how it is. Yeah. Like, that sucks. Yeah. I think for me, that 
particular policy kind of shows you how some of this inequality in Australia is by design, that you can just lift people out of poverty overnight if you decided to do so, and then you can put them back in. It turns really. out the solution to poverty is money. Give people money. <laughs> um, don't attach conditions to it. Don't tell them what they can and can't spend it on. Give them money. And then they will make decisions that are in their best interest, which is, you know, the one thing we needed growing up was money. Mm. I'm wondering if anyone has any kind of um, optimism from the past year, whether there is any sense that conversations have been started that will continue. I'm interested. (laughs) It's hard to be that optimistic about this moment, I think, because... I mean, the reality is that it's always been divided and the division has gotten worse over many decades as well. And then this pandemic has laid that bare. So it's very obvious now. And maybe, I mean, maybe one thing is it can finally get rid of the myth of uh, this whole thing about the fair go, that it is a myth. (laughs) Because Mm. basically we've been laboring under like these kind of false narrative for so long. Um, And yet like this pandemic has revealed that, you know, the people who have these central jobs are not necessarily paid the best at all. They're precarious. They're not, you know, and then others, I mean, I would say even, I would even include myself. I mean, I get to work from home and I'm actually like less at risk than many other people. Um, and so I think that the thing that has been really disappointing though, like that, especially in this latest outbreak, and I, and I think this, this is when I guess I felt compelled to speak up and say something. Um, you know, I have training in public health, but you know, also, I'm also a writer as well. And then because I could see what was happening in Southwest Sydney, I, I thought this was incredibly unfair now. Like then now that if they're not just the burden of like the pandemic, because a lot of essential workers live in this area, but also it's just the most policed area as well. Like, you know, like even now I hear helicopters overhead all the time. And I think, well, why are there helicopters? Like, what do they think they'll achieve with the surveillance of the population? Um, and so it is, there's going to be a lot of damage caused by all of this, I think. Like, I mean, yes, like it has always existed. So in a way it's nothing new. It's like people are kind of used to this. Um, especially like in this area, like they're used to being policed heavily. Like it's just the way things work here. Um, but it is like, people, there is a lot of anger and, you know, it will last probably like, you know, over a generation now. Like it's, it's quite galling, I guess, for a lot of people to see, you know, especially now with social media, it makes the rest of the world more visible to you. Like maybe that was something that was different when I was growing up. You didn't have social media. You didn't really know how the other half lived. Whereas now you can see mm. photos of people in Bondi yesterday and there are like literally thousands of them on the beach while you know, other areas are still very heavily policed um, and they can't kind of leave their house without, you know, being questioned. So I think those, that, that's, a really mis- that's a real missed opportunity, I guess, but it reflects like, you know, basically the politics of the day. This has become very politicised in a way that will really undermine like, you know, the solidarity that we might otherwise have come together at this time, because even if it's a divided city, we still live in the same city, basically. And but now that division, it sort of is that maybe that distraction um, that Rick kind of referred to earlier. But that I guess that's how the powers that be kind of get away with it by turning people against each other. Mm. I'm wondering, just because we're getting near to the end of the the chat, I've got a uh, maybe a bit of a simple question. But I'm wondering what type of policy would each of you like to see implemented overnight that you think would push Australia towards, you know, this fair go country that would, you know, make the myth not a myth? Um, maybe start with you, Bree. What, what would you like to see implemented tomorrow? Guaranteed, number one thing, universal early childhood education. Mm. I couldn't, there were a lot of things when I was writing this book that made me really mad, but the thing that made me the saddest was finding out that one in five five-year-olds in Australia, 20% of five-year-old children start grade one developmentally vulnerable, not being able to meet their developmental milestones. And thank goodness we live in a country where from the moment you turn five, you do get a free education. And we can say, and we can argue about how that's you know unequally resourced, which it is, but we have this collective belief that from the moment you turn five, you have a right to, to, the, to the state providing you with an education and that we can do that because we are a wealthy enough country and therefore we have an obligation to give everyone an, an education. And we consider education for people four and below to be welfare for women. And it mm. is just the most, um, devast- it has the most devastating effects. Uh, and if there would just be one, and, and of course, as you can easily imagine, for those 20% of kids, 
it's very difficult for them to catch up from how far behind they start because overwhelmingly they find themselves at comparatively under-resourced schools or they come from family backgrounds where they don't necessarily have parents who can help them with their homework. They may have caring and earning obligations themselves while they're at school. Mm. And it just, like, the phrase baked-in disadvantage gets, you know, thrown around and used a lot. But the effects of not having universal early childhood education, I believe, that is just so fundamental. And this outdated attitude towards mothering, essentially, parenting generally, yes, but particularly mothering is just doing so much harm. And and more and more, the more I research, the more I learn about it. If there was one thing I could pick that would have truly transformative intergenerational positive effects, it would be early childhood education. That that from the moment you are born, you have the right to an education the same way we now say that when you turn five, it commences. Mm. I mean, we're seeing so much of the cost of that now in the pandemic, the fact that <laughs> childcare centres are collapsing and <clears throat> predominantly mothers are picking up that burden, but don't have enough time to go further into it. Um, Rick, what would be your overnight public policy that you would implement as uh, the next Prime Minister of Australia? I just gave it away before, and it was done overnight. Double the uh, income support payments, um, double the well. I mean, basically, you don't have to double them, but give them a living wage, and don't call it job seeker. Um, don't attach conditions to it. Um, there's this great—I'll be really quick—but there's this great essay by Bertrand Russell, which is kind of the um, foundation stone of all of the thinking we still have about this today. And he, he writes on leisure, and he basically says the reason back when they were still working. Now, everyone was landed gentry and they they earned money from their land and their properties and they, did, they just had household staff and they didn't actually do any work. There was nothing physical um, that they did to contribute. And they were, you know, the upper classes were arming and ahhing about whether they should allow poor people, the workers, to have, you know, extra time off. And they didn't want to do it because they're just like, these people, they're just going to go around and drink and have sex and and be lazy. And the reason they thought that, you know, in Bertrand's thinking was because that's exactly what the rich people did. They didn't actually contribute yeah. anything except drink, have sex, and be lazy. And they can't be still... like us. How dare they? Exactly. <laughs> like they are just like us, but except that what they won't admit that to themselves. And that's where this comes in with all this conditionality in the welfare system, where we make people apply for twenty jobs a month. We you get we pay seven billion dollars over five years or whatever um, more now, I think, to make job agencies harass these people into mental ill health because we mm. don't trust them with the nice things that we have. And it's just, frankly, it's bullshit. Give people money. There was a study, there's a bunch of studies, basically. You give people money who are in poverty, um, they make decisions that make their lives better. Mm. Sheila, what would um, be your overnight policy change? <laughs> I mean, I totally agree with... Hard to follow. Um, what you said. <laughs> but also the UBI. And also, funnily enough, I just read that essay by Bertrand Russell, who I'm a big fan of, um, and about the whole... Oh, so thing. Good. That was really, so good. It's so good. Yeah, it's worth a read. Everyone should um, look it up. Um, I guess one thing I thought about with this whole discussion, um, and it's something maybe a bit tangential, and it maybe affects a smaller population, but I would I would like to sort of reframe this discussion we often have too about advantage and disadvantage. So, and I thought about you know, you know my family background and the people I knew. You know, I actually kind of reject the idea that in, that some of the things that we would call disadvantaged, um, they actually advantages. Like for example, a lot of people come to Australia knowing other languages, um, yeah. and yet it's completely it's completely devalued by you know, and this is um, in Australian society, but the same with a lot of English-speaking countries. And yet, if you actually, if we actually reframe the discussion so that, for example, we saw kids who started school with other languages, that maybe we should, you know, get them to keep that language. If we kind of invested more in language education, like we're one of the most, we have the most like monolingual mindset, you know, um, considering like just how multilingual our population is. And also, I mean, we have a multilingual history, like with like hundreds of like indigenous languages that came here before English arrived. Just a couple hundred years ago, and so when, mm. when I see like um, you know what's happening like you know in, in the school system, like for example the school that I'm in, the catchment of the public school, it's 99% non-English speaking background, and yet the principal has just decided that they don't want any languages at all. So there's no language programs for any kid there, and yet I think that just seems to me like a real devaluing of like the assets that people bring as well. So when I think about like you know, you know ideas of fairness, I'd like to sort of reframe the discussion a little bit so that it's not just about you know, people like being disadvantaged to fit into this society. Like we should change the society and really embrace like what, you know, this is what true diversity means. Like it means along every kind of, um, you know, 
aspect you can think of is actually like trying to reimagine like what Australia could be. And we keep sort of kind of trying to like entrench like this kind of old world, um, you know, hierarchy and, you know, making life just like more and more unfair when we could actually like reimagine something that is actually a bit more, I don't know, truly multicultural and like, you know, fairer for everyone. You see that so viscerally in the documentary In My Blood It Runs, where you have this young man, Indigenous man, who is, you know, a, a healer, a, a speaks, you know, his own language, is trying to fit into this system, which is not necessarily made for him. So I would feel like, you know, anyone who's interested in what Sheila's just said, going and watching that documentary is, is a must. Unfortunately, though, that is all that we have time for. You guys have all been so amazing and it's been so wonderful to speak to you. So just thank you so much. Thank, thank you. you. You can watch this talk on stream and you'll find the link in our show notes. Thanks for listening to Ideas at the House. I'm Edwina Throsby and I'll catch you next time.